Well, good morning again, and welcome to Berean Bible Church, and a Merry Christmas Eve to you all. Well, what comes to your mind when you think of the word majesty? The word majesty describes that which is regal or stately or supreme in greatness, and most seem to associate such a word with some marvel of creation, like redwoods as tall as a skyscraper or the vast Grand Canyon. We describe those scenes as majestic, the expanse of the Pacific, the The magnitude of the Rockies or any sunset would be majestic as well. In our language, the word majestic used to be synonymous with the word awesome, which referred to that which was awe-inspiring or breathtaking. Somehow in our culture, though, the word awesome has become this rather trite word for anything that gains approval. So people would describe Starbucks as awesome or funny cat videos as awesome or pizza as awesome. You probably wouldn't describe pizza as majestic, though. And thankfully, there's at least one word that's still reserved for that which is truly special and awe-inspiring. What's interesting, though, is that the word majesty is also used in some cultures for people. Not just any people, but certain people, special people, royal people. In Britain, for example, majesty is the highest title, even above your royal highness for uh, royals. It's actually only for the king and queen. When people greet the king and queen, they bow and they recite your majesty. As Americans, this is quite foreign to us. We abandoned the monarchy a long time ago. And for us to call a human being majestic, your majesty, it it seems foreign to us, out of place. What makes the Queen of England special? It's just that everyone agrees to make her special. She's not actually smarter or stronger than anyone else. Born under different circumstances, she'd just be someone's grandma by now. For example, back in 1936, King Edward VIII, he chose to abdicate the throne and give up being king so that he could marry a twice-divorced American socialite, and he did so. And the moment he, he gave it up, the moment he was done, he was no longer your majesty. It's, it's gone. All of his majesty was just gone, just like that. kind of makes you seem like it's an artificial majesty to begin with. Now, that being said, mankind does have some real majesty as a part of the created order, which is not unique to just kings and queens. Just consider, for example, the miracle of birth. Now, how can you not describe that as majestic? Every parent knows the majesty of new life. But just think, the human body consists of about three trillion cells, but each one of those cells has about three billion codes of DNA or, or, or pieces of DNA. You know, all the, all the information in the world could be stored in just two grams of your DNA. That's, that's majestic. That's profound. And then you consider the works of man from the pyramids to the Great Wall, from electricity to flight. We've transformed this world. We've even left this world and gone to the moon. Much of man's handiwork reveals his real majesty. Now, all this being said, though, when you stop and you consider just the majesty of creation or the majesty of mankind, what you're really doing is considering the majesty of God, for he he created it all. Both creation and mankind are, are God's handiwork. God being the creator, he's really putting himself on display through creation and through mankind, revealing himself as supreme, as matchless, as majestic, He made us, in fact, to reveal and reflect and and bask in his majesty. That is, believe it or not, the highest purpose of all creation, us included, and we want to participate in that this morning. And so you can open your Bibles now to Psalm chapter 8. Psalm 8. Taking it upon myself to preach through a few psalms here and I've had my eye on this one for a while now. It's a perfect psalm for Christmas. You'll see the connection in a little bit. But in general, this psalm is all about the matchless majesty of God. Psalm 8, it's a psalm of David, which is significant because David was a king. He was a great king. People were bowing down to him, saying to him, your majesty. So he knew what came with royalty. But David also knew that all glory and honor and praise and majesty really belongs to God alone. 
And so he writes about it here. Here, just as in Psalm 19, David calls on the various elements of creation to stand witness as if on trial and, and testify of the majesty of God. The difference, though, is that here, creation is not pictured as revealing something about God, but something about man. Psalm 19 tells us the heavens are telling of the glory of God. That's certainly true. This psalm tells us that the heavens, they also reveal the insignificance of man. The insignificance of man. I mean, you just look at the immensity of the created order and it makes you feel small and wonder, who are we? What is life? What is our purpose here? Do we, do we have a place in this world? And the expected answer is no. We're nothing. We're nobody. We're from nowhere. We're, we're going nowhere. We're just cosmic dust. We're insignificant. But that's not the answer found. To the contrary, we learn that as humans, we're actually quite significant in this universe, not because of who we are, but because of who God made us to be. We learn that this majestic God made us in his image. He made us to share in his glory and his majesty. And furthermore, God made us to share in his role, namely of rule over this world. He made us to be his, his delegates, his representatives on, on earth. These are amazing truths. Yet in the end, they only serve to further magnify God's majesty, the creator of all things, the true ruler of the universe. And so this psalm begins and ends with the same refrain, saying, O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is Psalm 8, and just, just to get started, let's read it now. You can follow along as I read through Psalm chapter 8. Psalm 8, verse 1. O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. From the mouths of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. Verse 3, when I consider your heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than God, and you have crowned him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands, and you have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, all, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea. Whatever passes through the paths of the seas, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Psalm 8 is all about the matchless majesty of God, which is revealed in many ways. And this morning, I just want us to behold it and bask in, in the majesty of God. We're going to start by taking a closer look at this psalm. Then we'll circle around later and, and see the connection to Christmas. There's one. I'll take my word for it for now. You can probably already imagine, though, Christmas has a little bit to do with the majesty of God being revealed. But let's start with this. Number one, God's majesty revealed in creation. God's majesty revealed in creation. Let's just go through this psalm a little more closely. Look back at verse one. Where David says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth who've displayed your splendor above the heavens. David begins by calling on the Lord twice. Only he uses two different names for Lord in the Hebrew. The first is Yahweh, the covenant name of God. When we look at the stars, you can discern that God exists, but you can't learn his name. That must be revealed. And thankfully, in love, God has revealed his name to his people. He is Yahweh, the great I am, the, the self-existent one. God's name is part and parcel with his identity. It's through his name that he reveals his nature and his character. And, and top of the list is just God's transcendence, his self-existence. After all, the name Yahweh, it's really just derivative of the Hebrew verb for I am. God just, he just exists. He's the self-existent one. No beginning, no end. God is set apart from all creation in that he, 
just always exists, never had a beginning, will not end. Just let that sink in for a second and just think about what that means. You had a beginning. The planet had a beginning. Stars, all the stars had a beginning. Everything we can conceive of had a beginning. Came from somewhere, but God did not. Never began. All creation owes its existence to God and continues to depend on God to to exist. Yet God himself owes his existence to no one, to nothing. That's it's pretty mind-boggling. We can't really conceive what it's like to have no beginning and no end. But this is who this God is. And so no wonder David says, O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This God, Yahweh, is, he's also Lord. The second word in Hebrew is the word Adonai. And it just stresses God's kingship in the Old Testament. David was king. But he knew that he possessed no real power or sovereignty in himself. Rather, in God was was all the real power, the real sovereignty. By virtue of his being, God is the king of kings. And God has, in fact, already displayed his supreme power and sovereignty in creation. As verse 1 says, who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. All you have to do is look up in the sky at nighttime, and unless you live in L.A., like we never saw stars before coming here, but you'll see the handiwork of God, which can't be denied. And so by just first impression in this psalm, we already learned that if you should be bowing down to anyone and saying, your majesty, it, it should be God. God is the only your majesty. But next in verse 2 comes this really interesting contrast that further describes the majesty of God. Verse 2, he says, From the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. You know, to me, the most stunning part of this verse is that this God has enemies, that this God would have adversaries. But he does. There are some, many even, who oppose God. I mean, just, just think about that. These are people who deny God's majesty, claiming it for themselves. They're the God of their own universe. Yet in the end, God still created these people. He still sustains them. They owe their continued existence every second to God. If he wanted, he'd simply just pull the plug on their existence and they would cease to exist. But he continues to sustain them, even though they are his adversaries. Not forever, though. God will, in the end, show himself to be truly supreme. And in that day, his glory will only be magnified by the means with which he shows himself supreme over all of his enemies. And in this case, we learn that some of the means God will use to silence his enemies is what? In verse 2. Babies. Infants. This is... Pretty stunning. I mean, we expect to see God's power on display in the solar system, like the furnace of the sun. We don't typically think of babies and strength in the same sentence, and it just doesn't go together. But that's the whole point. Babies are the epitome of weakness. They're so weak, they can't even hold up their own head or walk. They're so helpless, they can't even find food or even digest food. We could never imagine a baby defeating anyone. And that's the whole point. Because this is the power of God where he can take the weakness of the world and establish his strength and accomplish his victory. And it doesn't say how, but somehow God will establish strength from the mouths of infants and and babies to make his enemies cease. God can silence all of his foes through the least of these. We'll come back to this verse later and, and meditate on it a little bit further, but already understand that God's majesty, it's only more magnified when he uses weakness to show himself strong. Now, look at verse 3. He says next, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Next, David lifts his eyes to consider the heavens. And with the unaided eye, the the immensity of the stars is clear to all. 
all people, even these adversaries of God, have had, have had that experience where you're out in a field or something, you're in the night sky, you're away from the lights, you see the stars and you just you recognize the vastness of the universe and you feel this awe and wonder. It's a built-in response to, to God and to his creation that none can truly deny him in their heart of hearts. And today, though, with telescopes and such, we can even better appreciate the vastness of this universe, the immensity of, of space. But even still, the stars, they're still uncountable. We can't even come close to actually counting them all. It's, it's only estimated that in our galaxy alone, the, the Milky Way galaxy, there's 100 billion stars. That's just crazy. But that's just one galaxy. It's, there's many more galaxies, and, and you put them all together, it's ex- estimated that in the whole universe and, and all the billions of galaxies, there's 70 sextillion stars. I think they just made that up, but it's, <laughs> it's 70,000 million, million, million. That's apparently what that number is. And then just think that the closest star to us, it's still 40 trillion kilometers away. That's the closest one. On our fastest vessel to date, it would still take you 70,000 years to get there. (laughs) And these numbers are are pretty crazy. And then you think about our own star. We've got one of them, the sun. Every second, the sun fuses 600 million tons of hydrogen into helium. That's every second. That's 100 billion hydrogen bombs every second. If the energy of the sun could be harnessed for just one second, One second, it would power all the needs of mankind for 500,000 years. And then to think that there are stars out there that are 2,000 times larger than our sun, it's just, it's unfathomable, this this world, this space, this universe. And so really, truly, today, more than ever, never before can we actually appreciate all the more so the immensity of this universe. But that means... We should appreciate even more so the immensity of God. More than anyone before, any of the ancients, we should better appreciate the immensity of God. Because if you notice verse 3, it describes all of this, all the stars, as the work of God's fingers. It's the work of his fingers. That's not an accident. That's an intentional image there. You know, as big as the universe is, it's like a tiny little figurine that God put together with his fingers. And that shows you, as big as we see the world, why do you think, I love, you know, John Piper reflected on this a while ago, why do you think God made the world this big and the universe this big? Do we need 70,000 million, million, million stars to know that, you know, it's, it's big? Like a billion would have been enough, right? I and mean, that's, that's enough. We can't even see them all. Why do you think he made it this big? Probably to show us that that's a little bit like me. We could imagine him saying, you know, that, that's, that's just a little bit of how I'm like. Big, vast, unsearchable, infinite. Just, just think on that. It, it's mind-boggling to think. And not only does it glorify God and magnify God, it also shrinks man. And that's actually the point David's making here in, in these verses. It minimizes our place in the universe. You see how big this place is, how big God is, it leads you to just question you know, who are we? We're just a little tiny speck of dust to God. I mean, how much time do you spend thinking about a tiny little speck of dust in a corner of your attic? Zero. So, you know, how could a God like this ever think about us? How could he even notice us or care about us or, or know us? It's, it's, it's inconceivable that we would have any significance before such a God. But... We do. Look at verse 5 now. It says, Yet you have made him a little lower than God, and you have crowned him with glory and majesty. We find that despite our minuscule place in the universe, man has some majesty of his own. God has chosen to make us special and have a relationship with us that he doesn't have with, with everything else. That's, that's actually, in a way, even more breathtaking. What is it that makes mankind special? 
man's majesty comes in his image and his rule. His image and his rule. Verse 5, it's a reference to the image of God in man. He says, you have made him a little lower than God. Now, your translation might say angels here. You've made him a little lower than angels. It, the word is Elohim in the Hebrew. It's, it's actually just a generic word for heavenly beings. It can be God or gods or angels. Angels could be the correct translation, but either way, I think David is making an allusion to the image of God in men. That's the point. God has crowned humans with a bit of their own glory and majesty. It's derived from the fact that we were made in God's image. That's not true of any other created thing. As far as we know, we are the only beings made in his image. To be made in the image of God does not relate to our physical appearance, but speaks of us reflecting God's nature. In our character, we were made to be like God, and that's how we reflect his glory and his majesty. He's the sun, and we're like the moon. He generates the glory, and we just bounce it off and reflect it to the universe. Man's special dignity also comes in sharing God's role, which is rule over creation. God made man to be his, his representative rulers of earth. Look at verse 6. He says, next, you make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the sea. You can tell this, this is quite reminiscent of creation. Genesis 1:26, where it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. And verse 28 says, God blessed them, Adam and Eve, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. See, God's creation directive to mankind was to rule this world as his benevolent caretakers. So you put it together, though, in mankind's image and in his role, he has a bit of his own majesty, majesty derived from God. And so we find in the universe, amazingly, we, we are quite special. But we can't boast what do you have that you did not receive? In turn, this all, all of us, all we do is just magnify God's majesty even more. And so it's no wonder that David ends the psalm in the same way he began, reflecting on that matchless majesty of God. Verse 9, he says again, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Not our name, your name. So that's Psalm 8. But as you continue to reflect through scripture and come to a psalm like this, you kind of think, but, but isn't there a problem? Isn't there a problem with this psalm? You see, we learn in scripture that we were created to magnify God's majesty by bearing his image and sharing his rule. However, the majesty of man has been marred. And therefore, you could say that the majesty of God, in a sense, has been marred. What do I mean? Well, first, remember that image of God placed in us. That has been marred by the fall. Man was created in God's image, and we still bear his image, but in a corrupt way. We're, we're sinners. We do evil. That's not like God. In addition, the rule of man over the earth has been marred. Man still governs this world, but for the worse. We fill the earth with violence and tyranny and oppression, bloodshed. Led by our head, Adam, the whole race was plunged into sin, and we all became God's enemies, born in enmity with him. And so just think, God's majestic creation and, and his greatest work of mankind has been corrupted. It's fallen. And so you see the entrance of sin into the world and the fall. It poses a real problem for God's own majesty. Has he failed? Well, we would say, may it never be. Rather, 
this all came about by God's own design, like Oliver mentioned this morning. Why? Well, for the same reason God has allowed his enemies to exist and to oppose him, he's allowed all this to further magnify his name. And this God has indeed, he's only magnified his majesty by doing something about this fallen creation and fallen mankind. And what has he done? Specifically, God has worked to restore man's fallen image and man's fallen rule. And he's done done so through the perfect man, Christ Jesus. All to his greater glory. So let's reflect now on, on number two. You could say God's majesty revealed in incarnation. We've seen God's majesty in creation. Secondly, now God's majesty revealed in incarnation. Christ come to earth. So again, Psalm 8, we we think in reality, man's majesty is marred. His rule is corrupt. The world is fallen. It's broken. All creation groans for redemption. And so we're really left to look forward to a time when, when all this will actually be true in Psalm 8, that we really will reflect God's true majesty and, and rule. It's not surprising then that several times in the New Testament, Psalm 8 is quoted, is referenced in connection to Christ. There is a second layer, a prophetic layer to the words David wrote under inspiration. Perhaps a clue comes in the phrase, son of man, in verse 4, which Daniel and later Jesus himself would use as just this chief term for the Messiah. Is the Messiah found in Psalm 8? We'll look back at verse 2. Verse 2, it's never used in connection with the birth of Jesus. That's true, but it sure makes you think about the birth of Jesus, right? I mean, look at verse 2 again. It says, from the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. Just think for a moment about the incarnation of Christ. It really fits the theme here about how God uses weakness to show his strength. God takes the weak things of the world and through them achieves victory. And so his majesty is magnified. And isn't that what precisely happened in the coming of Christ at Christmas? God sent his son to the world to defeat all of his enemies, sin, Satan, and death itself. However, Christ, God the Son, the Son of God, He came down as the son of man. He doesn't come down as a mighty angel or heavenly being, although we know he retained his divine nature. He he took on the form of, of a man, of a human, that he might live as one of us. Just, you gotta stop yourself and marvel at the thought that the God who made the universe would come down and, and live as one of us, take our form and, and live with us as one of us. The God who made the universe with his fingers would would get fingers and live as us. I guess we can accept that, right? This God is all power. If if he wanted to do this, he he could do it. It wouldn't be beyond his power. So, okay, we can accept that. But then we would expect this almighty God to come down in in some supreme display of power, like, like a supernova or something celestial. But no, just the opposite. He shows up as a child. An infant, just this newborn baby, the the epitome of complete weakness and helplessness and dependence. I mean, Jesus, though, he had to be a true man for this mission. He had to start like, like all people, as a baby. And when his birth was announced, he's described as the Savior, the King of Israel. This is the Lord come down. This is David's Lord come down. But it's just, it's just an infant, so helpless, so weak. We learn in the Christmas story of Luke 2 that we summary read this morning more about the humble circumstances of Christ's incarnation, coming down, taking flesh. Now, at the very least, you'd expect him to be born to a noble family like, like a king. But no, he's born to a couple of Jewish peasants. They're, they're nobodies. They're from nowhere. Yet God chose Mary to be the vessel for this virgin-born son of man. 
And then in Bethlehem, where Jesus was predicted to be born, Mary and Joseph are traveling. So they're basically homeless, and they end up giving birth to Jesus, most likely in an animal stall, and they lay him in, in a feeding trough. You know, the word for manger in Luke 2.7, it really is just a feeding trough for, for cattle or for animal. What kind of a arrival for the Son of Man is this? And to top it all off, no one knows, no one cares. Jesus is not visited by kings and rulers, the priests, the, the, the religious leaders. They don't, they don't show up. They don't care. This is the king of kings, God himself, come to earth. He's not even recognized. No one cares. The only visitors he gets on the night of his birth are a couple of lowly shepherds. There's more nobodies from nowhere. But the point is, these are humble circumstances. Christ's coming to earth was marked by humility. But you realize why God did this, though, right? So that he might display his matchless majesty because he was going to use all of this weakness to establish strength and, in the end, silence his enemies. You know, later in Luke 2, as Jesus is depicted at, or rather, as he's dedicated at the temple, a man named Simeon comes and prophesies over him and, and says this, Luke 2, 30. He says to God, my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Finally, someone recognizes Jesus. And, and who is this, this little infant, eight days old, but he's recognized as salvation. He's the glory of his people. It doesn't look like it. It just looks like a helpless baby. Which to think that this would be the savior of the world. Just just put yourself in their shoes and, and try and fathom that. But it continues, verse 33. His father and mother were amazed at the things which were being said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel. You see, though, or rather through this little child, the wicked, even mighty kings would be brought down low to judgment. And the faithful would rise. The humble would be lifted up. And through him, all the enemies of God would be defeated once for all. And God's reign over this world would be restored. Hopefully, you're starting to see just the the majesty in God's plan of, of fixing this fallen, marred world through Christ, through incarnation, by sending Christ to the world. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. There's more here, though, namely how God would use this child to defeat his enemies and restore man's image and man's rule. So let's finally reflect now on number three, God's majesty revealed in salvation. God's majesty revealed in salvation. Somehow this small child, this infant, would grow up. He would defeat God's enemies, save God's people, and restore God's majesty in this world. But how? Not in the way people were expecting. Rather, God was going to continue to use the weak things of the world to show himself strong and accomplish his his goal. And along these lines, there are three interesting passages in the New Testament that quote Psalm 8 in reference to Christ. And we'll briefly talk about it. The first is Matthew 21. It's a triumphal entry. From birth, Jesus was revealed to be the promised son of David who would sit on his father's throne and, and reign over his people, saving them from his, their sins. But when Jesus finally comes into the city of David, he's not riding in on a, on a stallion as a conquering king. But he comes into town on a donkey as a humble servant. Just more humble circumstances. And even more humbling is the fact that the leaders of Israel, they don't recognize him. In fact, they they hate him. So much so that the Messiah has come, instead of praising him, they're trying to stop people from praising him. So Matthew 21, 15 says, 
But when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he had done, and the children who were shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they became indignant and said to him, Do you hear what these children are saying? The word Hosanna basically means salvation. Son of David, that's a messianic title all the Jews knew. So these children, they are clearly recognizing Jesus as the long-awaited Messiah, come to bring salvation to God's people. I mean, to them it's obvious. They see Jesus heal everybody. They hear him teach. And they read the signs. It's clear he's the Messiah. And being pure-hearted, they, they praise him for it, and they welcome him. But the religious leaders are indignant because Jesus has done nothing but expose their hypocrisy. So they try and silence the children. And they say to Jesus, do you hear what these children are saying? Can you believe they think you're the son of David? They're outraged, but Jesus replies and he says, yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies? You have prepared praise for yourself. Jesus hears what these children are saying, and and he approves. He hears them call him the Savior, and they're right. And in his response, Jesus quotes Psalm 8. And accordingly, he recalls how, how God is going to prepare praise for himself through the mouths of babies to make the enemies cease. And, and as a side note, it, it actually comes true in this passage. After Jesus quotes this, they say no more. His enemies are all silenced. They, they say nothing more. But really, the, the reversal here is, is just staggering because you have these top religious leaders of Israel. They're experts in the law, but they don't know who Jesus is. But then there's these little kids, and they can read all the signs clearly that, well, of course, he's, he's the Messiah. It's just a perfect example of the great reversal God accomplishes in his plan of salvation. Where the first are last, the last are first. If you want to live, you've got to die to self. The the proud will be cast down, the humble will be exalted. And the Savior, this, this King, he's going to accomplish God's salvation through a path of weakness. Keep in mind, where was Jesus going on that donkey? What was he going to do in the city of David that week? He was going to achieve victory. Yeah, he was going to do so by dying on a cross. Who could believe such a thing? No wonder Isaiah said, Lord, who, who, who shall believe our report? But through Christ's death, God was going to bring life. This brings us to Hebrews 2, 6 through 8, the second passage that quotes Psalm 8. This time it quotes pretty much half the psalm in connection with Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate one who is made for a little while lower than the angels, whom God crowned with glory and honor and appointed over the works of his hands. And God has made uh, put all things in subjection under his feet. And so really the author of Hebrews affirms that Psalm 8 is a messianic psalm. But then speaking of Jesus, it goes on to say in verse uh, 9 of Hebrews 2, he says next, but, but we do see him who is made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone, for it was fitting for him for, for whom are all things and through whom are all things, and bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. Just think, what what is really wrong with this world? How has God's greatest creation been marred? We would say by by sin, by Satan, and by death. That's that's what's wrong with everything, right? But we learn that Jesus came and he died to, to fix all of that. He came to earth, not as an angel, but as a human, to be a substitute for humans. Like verse 14 goes on to say here, since we're flesh and blood, he himself partook of the same. He became one of us to die for us in our place. And verse 14 continues saying he he had to die so that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, the devil. And you see, on the cross, Jesus was paying for all of our sins and defeating the devil. He was, he was 
throwing down our, our greatest enemies, sin and Satan. And all the more, therefore, he's crowned with, with greater glory and majesty. But that's not all, because we also learn that through this plan, God was also doing what? It says in Hebrews 2, God was bringing many sons to glory. Not just one son, he was bringing many sons and daughters to glory. Realize, through Jesus, God was restoring our majesty. God was renewing the image of God in us, which had been marred by sin and Satan. So in salvation, when you come to Jesus, what happens? Your sins are taken away by faith. You're granted his perfect righteousness, and then ultimately you are conformed to the image of him, of the Son. This is how God restores man's majesty. He reshapes us into his image. That's the image of Christ. And so, for example, Romans 8, 29 and 30 says, For those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. These whom he called, he also justified. These whom he justified, he also glorified. It ends in glory. This is our path to glory. Christ is our glory. He brings complete restoration with God and he renews our fallen image. This is the majesty of God in salvation. We'll take it one more step though. One final passage, 1 Corinthians 15. A third passage which quotes Psalm 8 in connection with Jesus. This is the resurrection chapter of Paul. And remember, what's wrong with the world? Sin, Satan, but, but really the greatest problem we have is death. Just death itself. It epitomizes everything wrong with this fallen creation. Everything ends in death. But Christ brings life through resurrection. When he was raised to new life with him, that's when the image of God in us will be truly perfected. Like it says down in verse 49, it's contrasting Adam and Jesus, the first Adam, the second Adam. And it says, just as we have borne the image of the earthly, that's Adam, so we will also bear the image of the heavenly, that's Christ. We will be conformed in that day to the image of Christ. What's interesting, though, is 1 Corinthians 15 says something else also takes place at the resurrection. That's when the reign of Christ is made complete as well. And this is where Paul now quotes Psalm 8, indicating that God has put all enemies under Christ's feet. Jesus, he's reigning now, but not completely. You see, there remains a future time when all enemies will truly be in submission to him. In fact, we're left looking forward to that time when even the greatest enemy of God of all will be brought into submission and conquered by Christ. And that is death itself. So look at verse 22. It says, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Verse 25. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. That's the Psalm 8 quote. And then verse 54. It says, But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? You see, in Christ, the rule of God through man is restored as well. This rebel world is brought back under God's dominion. And death itself is swallowed up in victory. Just, just think back to the first Christmas, the birth of Christ. Maybe you're one of the shepherds or you're at the temple. You see this infant. Great things are being said of him and just... Who could fathom that this child would be the answer to death, to all death, and would, would 
conquer death itself. Who could imagine? Do you, do you marvel at that, what God was doing in this child who, who came to, to live and die for us and rise? That's the real majesty of Christmas. And Christ is the majesty of God. The majesty of God has a name, and it's, it's Jesus, and he's come. Through the weakness of the cross and through resurrection, Jesus now stands offering new and eternal life to all now who will come to him by faith. The faith of a child. You've got to come like a little child, just complete humble dependence and trust in him to save you from your enemies. And those who humble themselves and seek him, they will find life and life eternal. Christ is the one who renews our image and restores our rule. Just as 2 Timothy 2.12 says, if we endure, we will reign with him. So you see, Christ, he is both the majesty of God and the majesty of man. He's our majesty. He can renew your majesty, but you must go to him. In fact, I would exhort you today, if you haven't, to receive Christ, to turn to him. Repent of your sins, turn from your own way, it's the way of death anyway, and go to him who holds life in his hands. He's already come to pay your price of sin, to to offer you life through his resurrection. He's the only one that can deliver you from your greatest enemy, which is still death itself. But you've got to turn from your sins and turn to him like just like a total child to his father. It's just asking for help, mercy, help me, save me with this childlike dependence and trust. And you'll never be turned away if you go to him like that. Now I'd encourage you to do this today. This is where peace is found. It's a time of year we remember the Prince of Peace come to bring peace on earth, goodwill to men. This is the only place where there's actual peace. Everything else is a false refuge for your, your soul. Find your real peace and hope and life in Christ and and do it today. And for all of us, you know, we're going to depart this morning and and probably just scatter to our various family traditions, and and that's fine, but I pray, though, you're left with a lasting impression of the matchless majesty of God. And then you just take some time to to escape the noise uh, of Christmas and just bask in God's majesty revealed in creation, revealed in incarnation, Revealed in salvation. This is God's real power. And 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Let me just keep reading. Verse 20 says, Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom, did not come to know God. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for a sign and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To Jews, a stumbling block, and to Gentiles, foolishness, but to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. And if I can add in a non-blasphemous way to Scripture, the majesty of God. You know, the message of Jesus, it's, it's just foolishness. To the world, you know, the real meaning of Christmas, it's, it's dumb. It's foolishness. Who would believe any of this? But what can we say? I, I guess we're the fools of the earth. If you're called, if you're chosen, if you believe, fall in line. We're just, we're the fools of the earth, we, we can do no other because we've been convinced that to the contrary, this is, this is the power of God. This, this plan, this revelation, this is the wisdom of God. This is the majesty of God. It's a Christ. And this is what God does. He takes weakness and he turns it into victory. And in the end, we can't boast in Christ. It's all his doing anyway. And so it all ends with with majesty, God's matchless majesty, just further magnified in Christ. And all we can really do is simply join the chorus of saints and angels 
and singing praise to this God and his son who did so much for us, who, who restores us, our, our image, our rule, our everything in him. So we can end and say and pray and praise, O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let's make that our prayer. Let's pray. O oh Lord, our Lord, we confess how majestic is your name in, in all the earth. Lord, before we came to you and, and the world out there, we wanted one thing, and that's the glory of our own name. We wanted to be magnified. We wanted praise. We want glory and, and, and accolades, riches and honor. It's the desire of every fallen heart to dethrone you and to take your place. Even like Satan in the garden, Lord, this is, this is the, the fallen heart of man, to rob you of that which is yours, supremacy, glory, majesty. But thank, thank you, Lord, in your mercy and your love that you devised this majestic plan to bring many sons and daughters to glory. And that is by sending your own son, the God-man, God incarnate, to, to come as a child. It's time, Christmas time, we remember that. Born in weakness, born to die. Born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth, we sing. We remember that time, Lord, when salvation came down. Salvation had a face. Salvation had a name. And it's Christ. He lived. He died. He rose to conquer sin and Satan and death itself. And we believe. We confess this to be true, Lord. And in this we find peace. A peace the world can't touch, can't fathom. We have the peace of Christ in our hearts because we, it is well with our soul. We, we are his now. We pray this for any here who don't know you, that you would give them this peace, you would open their eyes, you would humble them from their pride, and they would come like children to, to find you and, and to be safe and to be renewed and restored and, and given joy this Christmas. That indeed is the greatest Christmas present any can receive. All of us, Lord, I pray that as we depart, we, we do leave just remembering your majesty, looking up in the, the sky, the, the stars, reading our Bible, and just beholding your majesty, praising you, living for your praise all of our days. It's to your glory, from you, for you, to your all things, to you be the glory. Amen.